good to hear the choir again. I don't know if you heard Norman be March the 8th of last year was the last time they sang. And so, uh, well, spring has sprung, hasn't it? It's here, isn't it, officially? John chapter 4, John chapter 4, am I on, Larry? Okay, the um, green light on the podium mic is turning yellow. So, yeah, John chapter 4, about verse 43, and um, we'll read through verse 46, I do believe. Now after two days he departed thence and went into Galilee. For Jesus himself testified that a prophet hath no honor in his own country. Then when he was coming to Galilee, the Galileans received him, having seen all the things that he did at Jerusalem at the feast. For they also went into the feast. So Jesus came again into Canaan of Galilee, where he made the water wine. And there was a certain nobleman whose son was sick at Capernaum. Let me read one more. When he heard that Jews was come out of Judea into Galilee, he went unto him and besought him that he would come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. We're about to see the second miracle that Jesus would do. The first miracle, I probably will repeat it here in a little bit, was turning the water into wine. And the second miracle will be healing this nobleman's son. But I want to just talk for a moment. As Jesus was going into Galilee, he said a prophet has no honor in his own country. All of my life, I heard that statement as a reason why I couldn't pastor a church in my own community because they would say a prophet is without honor in his own country. Nobody will respect you uh, because you were raised here, you grew up here. And that's what Jesus was talking about there because Galilee was his country. It was where he grew up. These people felt very familiar with Jesus and they knew him, and I experienced that as well, and I heard that statement over the years of me growing up, and once I became a Christian, and especially once I started pastoring a church that, and was called into the ministry, that people would say, well, you can't pastor one in your own community because people won't have any respect for you. And I don't disagree with the statement that Jesus made because just because he said it didn't make it so. 
But he said it because that was the attitude of the people that lived there. Jesus is just that carpenter's son. Well, he's nobody special. But you, as you grow up, especially in ministry, I learned something that you had to demand or command the situation to earn respect. And it took some time away from home, or I pastored, in fact, I tell you this, it, the Lord figured that the only way I'd get any respect as a preacher was to send me a long ways from home. And the first church I pastored was an hour and 15 minute drive from my house where I lived. And so I spent several years there and then went to another church that was a little distance <coughs> from my home and spent several years there. And then finally I pastored a church not far from where I lived and had a tremendous ministry but the prophet earned respect in the community. And Jesus had started to earn some respect. Now he'd only been in the ministry starting his ministry a short time but he had been in it long enough to where they'd heard some things that were going on and heard some things that were taking place in his life and in his ministry. But these people, they did not honor him the way that they should have. Um, they didn't honor him in a way that would respect him. In fact, uh, in this that we recognize that they really weren't familiar with Jesus. They really weren't familiar with who he was or what he was doing. They'd heard about him healing people and raising people from the dead. They'd heard about these miracles that uh, he was starting to perform and the power and the influence that he had, but they really didn't know Jesus. They, they weren't that familiar with him, but... If they were, they would have honored him all the more. In fact, there's such a thing as a false familiarity that they think they know about this individual or they think they know this person, but they really don't know them. Have you ever heard somebody state, uh, make a statement, well, I thought I knew you, but evidently I don't. I thought I knew who you were, but evidently I don't know who you are. And so they had a false familiarity with Jesus and it was a, a dangerous feeling that, that they thought they knew all about him, but they didn't know all about him. In fact, when I came here to this church or any other church, you all didn't know everything about me. You still don't know everything about me. In fact, you may find, be finding out some things you don't like about me. Well, I'm finding out things I don't like about you either, all right? No, I'm just kidding. But, but we think we know each other. We, we have this false familiarity about each other. But, but we, once we get to know each other more or more 
intimately, if I can say it that way, that, that we, we get to know each other in a deeper way. And it's, there's a dangerous feeling that, that would, uh, that would uh, affect uh, some type of an honor that we might have for each other or that we might have toward Jesus Christ. I told Jenny the other day, I have no more heroes of the faith. I'm very discouraged with other Christian leaders who I held in high regard over the years that, that I looked up to as Christian leaders that I thought, not that they were above reproach because they're all human, but that I have scratched them all off of my list. Because one of the people that I love dearly and have most all of his books and have listened to him time after time after time, I have his app on my iPad, I can touch it and go listen to his sermons, had over 200 affairs in his ministry's lifetime. And had pictures of women on his phone and other things. And I'm thinking... I thought I knew him. We put our trust in people or somebody with a false familiarity and thinking that we know this individual. And, and, and I've said years ago, nothing surprises me anymore about anybody. If I hear something on you, more than likely I'm going to believe it. I don't want to. Don't want to. But no, isn't it awful that Christians aren't living above reproach? And Jesus was in this way that people were saying to him, he's just the carpenter's son. He's just a lowly carpenter. We saw him growing up. We, we saw him, what he did as a kid. We, we heard him uh, as a kid, but, but if they'd really listened to him as a kid, as a 12-year-old kid, he was, he was expounding the Word of God in the temple, and, and he was Hale and the priests that were there, and that he was astounding them, even as a kid. And I wonder sometimes if the reason why we don't have honor in our own country is because of people that really know us. People that really see us. It's a hard thing. In fact, it's a little bit hard to know if John meant to associate the place where Jesus was and where he was not honored here in Canaan of Galilee with other things. But he did. But Jesus, having seen all of these things that he did in Jerusalem in the feast, and, and there were things, and it was customary for the Jews in Galilee to go to Jerusalem to the feasts, and, and they were doing this, they were going... And they might have remembered when Jesus turned the, the merchant's tables over uh, in the temple. He, they may have remembered the, the little bit of anger that he showed at that particular time. They may have remembered 
the lack of control that he had in his life. They may have held that against him for some reason, but at this particular time, they remembered all that Jesus had done in Jerusalem. They remembered everything that he had done, and, and perhaps they remembered uh, things that they shouldn't have remembered. But yet the nobleman comes along with his son, and there was a certain nobleman uh, whose son was sick in Capernaum. And, and so this, this nobleman, this man, uh, uh, his boy was sick. And by the time Jesus had made uh, uh, his home there in Capernaum as well, he was from Canaan of Galilee, but he was living in Capernaum and, and he was making his home there. And, but yet Canaan of, of Galilee was a pretty good little distance away from Capernaum. And so for the man to come from Capernaum to there took him a little while to get there. It took him some uh, time to get there. But yet Jesus was at Cana and the nobleman traveled. And in fact, I think I read somewhere that it was about 20 miles or so uh, from Capernaum to Canaan. And the man, the nobleman travels that 20 miles to get to Jesus. And literally, uh, it means a royal person. This man didn't have to go there, but his son was dying. His son was sick. The Bible says unto death, he was probably an officer of Herod Antipas. He was probably high up in the court. Uh, he ran there. Uh, I remember when I went to India and I was preaching one day there at a church and there was walls all around that church and I was preaching there and after the service was over with, there was a group of people that were gathered around and I was thinking about this uh, last night as I was preparing for today. Uh, and I may comment about it again here in a little bit, but I'm trying to hurry. But that uh, people would wait around and they would ask you to pray for their children or they'd ask you to pray for uh, their loved one. And I don't know how many mothers uh, or dads would bring their children up to me as a, as a preacher there. And they did it to every preacher that was there preaching somewhere. But that they would bring their children up to me and say, pray for my child. And they may have had a crippled arm. They may have walked with a limp. There may have been something physically wrong with them. They wanted us to pray for healing. They wanted us to pray for them. I don't know how many. Uh, there must have been a lot of kids there that weren't doing very good in school because their parents would bring them up to me and say, pray for my child that he'll do better in school. Pray for my child that he'll make A's in school. Pray for my child that uh, that he'll pass school. And they, they wanted their child to be in a higher class than what they were in. And they wanted them to do better than what they were doing. And so they constantly prayed. Here's a man, a royal man. But in that group of people that after I was preaching to somebody, uh, what, my host punched me and said, see that fellow over there? And there was a guy, I would say he was like Saul. He was head and shoulders above all the other Indians. Big fella, big, tall, husky fella. And they said, see that guy in the, over there in the midst of all those people? And I said, yeah. And he said, he's number seven in the Indian government in the whole country of India. And he's a born-again Christian. And nobody knows it outside of his personal friends and, and relatives. He does not tell the government officials that he's a Christian. 
that he's a born-again Christian. And I thought, well, I got to preach to him. I preached preach Jesus to him. Uh, I, I preached the cross to him. Uh, and we preached other things as well. But here's this nobleman that's running to Jesus, bringing uh, what's on his heart about his son to, to implore him to come down and to heal his son, to come back to Capernaum, come back 20 miles or better to heal my son, come back to take care of my son. I implore you, Jesus rebuked all of those that depended on signs and wonders. And he talked about that. He said, you're looking for signs. You're looking for miracles. You're looking for wonders. What about faith? What about just faith? What about just believing for a little while? It might seem that Jesus was harsh with these people uh, at this particular point. And it might seem that he was harsh toward this man because he was saying to him, all you want is a sign. You want me to come down? Will you believe if I go down and heal your son? Will you believe if I go down and touch your son? Will you believe if I do some miracle in your presence? But he encountered many in Galilee who were interested only in the miracles of what you can do for me, of what you can do for my family. What you can do, I want to see something spectacular. I want to see something mind-blowing. I want to see something that's moving. I want to see something. And so he questioned this man accordingly. Signs and wonders can lead a person towards belief in God. And it can validate a heavenly messenger, but they can also have no effect on a person whatsoever. Signs and miracles can make them believe. Uh, If they see, think about Thomas, the doubter. When they told him, Jesus is alive. He said, I don't believe it. I'll believe it when I see it with my own eyes. I'll believe it when I see it. And when when he saw Jesus, Jesus got him, took his hand, thrust it into his side, and said, now feel this. And what did Thomas say? My Lord and my God. When he saw the scars in his hands and the scars in his side, seeing made him believe, so it can lead a person to believe. But sometimes it has no effect on the individual. And Satan can also use lying signs and wonders to cause people to have a false belief or a false familiarity of Jesus Christ. Signs and wonders from God are no doubt a good thing but they should not form our foundation for our Christianity or for our faith. We should not depend on signs and miracles to prove God to us. We should not depend on what we can see. In fact, let me say this to you this morning. I'm not saved because of what I can see. I'm saved by what I believe in the Word of God. For by grace are you saved through faith. 
It's not of works, not of signs, not of wonders, not of miracles, not of anything that's been done, not of any work that's been done. I saw a little cartoon this past week and a little boy was looking up at his dad. He said, Dad, you mean to tell me I'm not going to heaven because I've been good? He said, no, son, you're not. If you go to heaven, it's going to be through the blood of Jesus Christ. And the little boy said, well, I've been good for nothing then. Isn't that just like a little boy to say? These words imply that there's a contrast between the Samaritans who believe because of his word and the Jews who would not believe through the miracles and the signs and wonders. He did a lot of things in front of the Jewish people and many still did not believe. I, I don't know. I, I mean, if, if I was standing out there by the tomb of Lazarus and I was an unbeliever and Jesus steps up and says, Lazarus, come forth. And, the, and after they've rolled the stone out of the way and Lazarus comes hopping out, all still bound up in clothes, I just think I'd become a believer real quick. I mean, I, I would you? I mean, I, I just would, you know. I, I don't believe in extraterrestrial uh, intelligence. I, I don't believe that there's people in outer space. I mean, if God wanted to inhabit another world, he could do that. And that, uh, but if... If he'd done that, then he did it before we were created. And so I would say that he wasn't satisfied with them. They're pretty stupid, so he made us smarter. But we always think that they're smarter than we are. They've got faster airplanes. They've got spaceships. They've got all this stuff. They've got all this stuff going on. If if they're more intelligent than we are, why do they pick the dumbest people to snatch up out of this world? Why do they pick that hick farmer somewhere that don't have any teeth and, and you see him interviewed on television and say, I was kidnapped by space aliens and they operated on me and dissected me and put me back together and their eyes are crossed and everything else is wrong. Why do they pick the dumbest people? Uh, I don't know. But, but signs and wonders. But we, we think, yeah, it's true. We've seen it. We've, we've saw it happen. And, and I, I've got, I love to look at the stars. I love to look at the planets. And I've told you all before, I got this app on my iPad that, that I can push it in it. I can hold it up to the sky and it tells me what star. Lita, you got that too, don't you? It'll tell me where the stars, what constellation they are. It'll show me where the, uh, the um, what do you call it, that thing that the people are on up there? Space station. Uh, show me where satellites are. It'll tell me when the space station, where it's at in the sky and, and all this stuff. And I enjoy that. And I haven't had my telescope out for a little while, but I enjoy looking at that. I enjoy 
those type of things. But I get a thrill out of it because God hung it there. God put the moon and the stars there. God put all of that together just to amuse us. God did it all. And that's amazing to me that I could sit back. I went to Alaska one time and I, and I was laying back on the bank there in Alaska and I was watching. There was a big pond there on this Indian reservation. In between every mountain peak, there was a lake. And I was sitting there on the edge of that lake and I'd been fishing and catching trout and salmon and all kinds of things. And they were wearing me out. They were trying to uh, bite the bobber. They were trying to swallow the bobber that I was using uh, to fish with, catching two trout at a time. And I quit as the bald eagle were flying down and fishing off of the lake and they'd scoop up a trout and they'd fly off into a tree and sit there and eat it and I'd sit and watch them. And I began to just rejoice and praise God and thank God for all of his creation of all the signs and wonders that were there. But I believed in God before I ever saw those things. The nobleman said to Jesus, a man of high standing and high stature, all of his standing and all of his stature couldn't help him and couldn't do anything for him. And he comes to Jesus who he'd heard that could make a difference. He'd only done one miracle that were recorded in God's word. He'd only done one miracle that's in the, in the Word of God at this particular point, but the power and what he had seen. He'd just come out from this woman that said, did he not tell me everything that I've ever done? Is this not the Christ, the, the Savior of the world? Is this not the Messiah? And, and his testimony is growing. People's witness of him is growing. This man heard of that, and he had a great need. He experienced the level of effect of the affection and the affliction of life, and he saw no other way out but to run to Jesus. And I want to tell you something, folks. Until we can see no other way out, we'll never run to Jesus. I'll never forget was in India, there was people there that were crippled and, and all, and they were in church, and, and they were standing there telling us preachers that they had no doctors there. They had no medicine there. They didn't have anything there to help them. And one of the preachers that, uh, looked at this young boy and said, uh, well, it sounds to me like God's all you got. And this young boy looked back at that preacher and said, sir, God's all we need. For this nobleman, Christ was all he had. No one else could help his Son, no one else could do anything for him. The nobleman didn't appeal to Jesus on the basis of his noble status. He didn't say, because I'm in the court of the emperor. He didn't say, because I'm a noble individual, you need to come and help me because I've got money, because I've got riches, because I've got stature. You need to come and help me. He did not do that. They would have been very empty words to Jesus Christ. He wouldn't have cared who they were or where they were from. He helped the young and the old. He helped the rich and the poor. He helped all of those. I've preached to governors. I've preached to the people seventh in the kingdom of India. I've preached to dirt poor individuals. I've preached to rich people. I've, 
I, I had a man sit in a church I pastored that was uh, in the top 100 richest people in the world, the richest person in West Virginia, the largest landowner east of the Mississippi, and I preached the same to him as I've done to anybody else over the years and preached Jesus and tell him the truth all the way down the road. It wouldn't have mattered to Jesus who he was or what he had. But he had a need just like everyone else had a need. He urged no merit, Spurgeon says, but pleaded the misery of the case. He did not plead that the boy was a noble birth that would have been very bad pleading with Jesus, nor did he urge that the boy was a lovely child. That would have been a sorry argument but he pleaded that he was at the point of death. Didn't matter what he had. Didn't matter how good looking he was. Didn't matter what family he was born into. He was dying. Jesus says, go your way. Your son lives. The man could have said, no, you've got to come with me. You, you've got to come where he is. You've got to be there. Jesus said, go your way. Your son lives. Forcing him to believe Jesus, not to see Jesus. Forcing him to have faith in Jesus, not to see the works, but to believe the word alone and not in the outward demonstration of some miracle that he would perform, but forcing him to believe. Despite the test, the man took Jesus at his word and left. It was, I, I, I want to put it like this. When he was coming from Capernaum to Canaan, the Bible gives us an indication that he ran there. He hurriedly went to Canaan of Galilee because his boy was dying. He didn't know if he'd have another moment. He didn't know if he'd have another second. And he hurried as fast as he could to get to Canaan. And I'm not going to go back and read it and give you the indication. But he went it took him till the next day to go back to Capernaum. He'd just walk along kicking gravel and <laughs> why? Because Jesus told him in Canaan, your boy's gonna live. He believed Jesus and took him. He came on the basis of needing a miracle. He went back home on the basis of faith. Didn't matter what time he got home. <laughs> My boy's gonna live. <laughs> Boy, ain't that a pretty bird? <laughs> you know, just piddling around, just taking it easy. And, oh, hey, how you doing? Yeah, hey, I just been over in Canaan 
my boy's over in Capernaum. He was dying, but Jesus told me he's going to live. So, hey, I can't, you know, I'm just having fun going home. And when he got home, I'll hurriedly say, when he got home, the servants came to him and said, Master, your son lives. Now, King James doesn't say this, but I think he said, I know. I knew it. Jesus said he was going to. I didn't go all the way to Canaan for nothing. Jesus told me he, he was alive. Jesus told me he's going to live. I know that. But it said, what time did the boy get up? What time did he come back to life? What time was he there? Jesus did not use any kind of dramatic effects in the healing Many people want to see some kind of dramatic effect. I, I watch people on TV that, uh, and you all know who I'm talking about, they'll have a healing line, he'll swat his coat at them. He'll blow at them, motion his hand at them. Hogwash. Jesus wasn't in dramatics. Jesus wasn't in a circus atmosphere. In fact, in many cases, when Jesus healed somebody, he'd tell them, say, don't tell anybody. Don't say nothing about it. Don't tell anybody. Just go your way. Don't make a big deal out of it. Why? Because it's nothing to Jesus. I mean, it's no big thing to heal somebody. It's no big thing to to, to raise somebody from the dead. That, that's nothing impossible for Jesus. But this nobleman says, what time? What time did it happen? And his, and his, uh, his people said, well, let's see, it, it, let me go down here and we'll find it. Nobleman said to him, sir, come down, uh, ere my child died. Jesus said, go thy way, thy son liveth. In verse 51, he's now going down. His servants met him, told him, saying, Thy son liveth. Then inquired he of the hour when he began to amend. And they said unto him, Yesterday at the seventh hour, uh, the fever left him. So the father knew it was at the same hour, at the very same time that Jesus said, Go home, your son lives. You see, when God heals somebody, he doesn't partially heal them over a period of time. When God heals somebody, he does it instantly right now. And you say, what time did it happen? So the father knew that it was at the same hour in which Jesus said unto him in verse 53, thy son liveth, and he himself believed and his whole house. This is again the second miracle that Jesus did when he was come out of Judea into Galilee. The second miracle, the gospel of John, the signs are given to lead the reader to faith. John chapter 20, verse 29, 31. The relation between belief and signs is clear in John chapter 2 and John chapter 4. The first sign 
persuaded his disciples. The second sign persuaded the Jewish nobleman and his whole household. And then the Samaritans believed without a sign at all. Jesus said it's a perverse generation that requires a sign. We may not see the power of God act in our lives until after we express faith in our lives. We may not see God move in our life until after we have moved by faith. For without faith it's impossible to please God. And if we want to please Him, we must have faith. Stand with me, please. His heads are bowed, eyes are closed, just for a moment. Sometimes it's very difficult to trust and believe. Sometimes it's very difficult to exercise faith. Sometimes, especially in the world in which we live now, there's not a lot of faith that's being shown. Um, And I think one of the most damaging is of our faith and belief in God's Word. To trust His Word. To decide above everything and anything, I'm going to follow Jesus. I'm going to go with Him. I'm going to stay with Him. I'm going to stand on His Word, believe His Word. I will trust Him all the way to the end. I will have faith in Him and in His promises all the way to the end. And I don't know your hearts here today, but if there's somebody here today who would say, Preacher, I'm not a Christian. I've never been saved. I I don't know. I'm, I'm just struggling with that. I don't know. Would you pray for me? Would you pray for me? Is, is there anybody here this morning who say, Preacher, I know that if I'm, I know that I've been saved, but I also know that I'm not where I ought to be as a Christian. My faith needs to increase. My belief, my trust needs to increase. I Pray for me. Is there somebody here this morning who said, Preacher, I'm going through some things in my life, maybe physically, emotionally, spiritually. Do you say, Preacher, I need prayer. I need God to do a work in my life. Yes, yes, yes. If you'll slip up your hands, if any of those things, if you'll just slip up your hands, take them right back down. Yeah, yeah. God knows your heart. God knows the need. God knows your level of faith. 
and He'll deal with you and work with you on your level of faith. Would you trust Him today to do that? Father, I pray for these folks. I pray that you'll draw them to yourself. Give them peace, grace, mercy, healing, salvation, forgiveness. I pray that whatever it is they need, they'll get it from you today. I pray it in Jesus' name and amen.